when the coronavirus stopped the world from spinning. My fraternity brothers and I did what many people did to break the social isolation of home confinement. We began meeting over Zoom. Our conversations ranged from the serious to the silly. We encouraged each other to be safe, to mask up, and ribbed each other for the hilarious ways we chose to stay busy. We were grateful for this little bit of escapism. And we were all excited when the COVID-19 vaccine was approved. But not everyone was eager to get the shot. Vaccine hesitancy among my frat brothers, all college-educated black men, was real. Like others in the African-American community, their caution was not irrational. It was not rooted in the fictitious belief that the virus wasn't real, a fantasy that continues to fuel vaccine refusal among politically conservative whites. It was rooted instead in historical reality. African-Americans have long suffered from medical racism. Stories of abuse from the Jim Crow era circulate widely within the black community. Several of my fraternity brothers, who said they did not trust the federal government, pointed to the Tuskegee experiment. For several decades, starting in the 1930s, federal officials in Tuskegee, Alabama, withheld penicillin from black men suffering from syphilis so that they could measure the effects of the disease. Other brothers mentioned Henrietta Lacks, who while a patient seeking treatment for cancer at Johns Hopkins, had cells harvested from her body without her permission. Cells that continue to replicate to this very day in research labs around the world. And still others pointed to the forced hysterectomies that black women such as civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer endured at the hands of white doctors in Mississippi. Thankfully though, this sordid history did not keep my fraternity brothers from getting the vaccine. But it did take several of them longer to get it, a pattern reflected in the broader black community. The black essayist James Baldwin observed, we are our history. Indeed, we are that which we have experienced directly and that which we have experienced indirectly through collective memory. And when it comes to medical treatment, these experiences affect people's willingness to seek care. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. This nation has a long history of exploiting African-Americans in the name of medicine, going back to the nation's founding and early outbreaks of yellow fever. After emancipation, Racist medical practices were used to continue controlling the bodies and lives of African-Americans, creating a painful legacy of experimentation, forced procedures, substandard care, and neglect. Historian Deidre Cooper Owens is the author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, 
and the origins of American gynecology. In a conversation with my co-host, Bethany J., she details a chronology of medical malpractice and a pattern of racist misconceptions about health in the United States. They also discuss lesser-known examples of game-changing medical innovations by African Americans. I'm glad you could join us. For those in our audience who are not familiar with Deirdre Cooper Owen, she is the Charles and Linda Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and Director of the Humanities and Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the OAH as the best book written in African-American women's and gender history. Quite an accomplishment. And we're so happy you could be here with us today. Your second appearance on the Teaching Hard History podcast. For those who don't know, Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens appeared on season one of the podcast in the Diverse Experiences of the Enslaved episode, which I think I have assigned to one or more of my classes every semester since. So thank you again for being here to share your expertise on medical racism. Oh my goodness, it is my pleasure to be back again. I feel very special and honored to be back a second time. Um, And I am always happy to uh, have a conversation with another historian who understands the import of this particular kind of American history. So thanks so much. In season four of Teaching Hard History, we're obviously focusing on the post-emancipation experience of Jim Crow. But when we're talking about the intersections of medicine and race, we need to acknowledge that that history extends back into that very early colonial period. As we often do, we need to reach back into that era of slavery to provide context Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you have European people coming to this country, and then you have a group of folk who are coming from a number of West African nations and some Central African nations, and they're also bringing their own knowledge about healing and medical care. And so I often tell students about an African uh, enslaved man named Onesimus. I mean, obviously, this is a name that was given to him by his owner. Mm. And he was gifted to a minister named Cotton Mathers. And Cotton Mathers was not just a minister, but an author and an intellectual and a leader in colonial America. Mm-hmm. And in colonial America, I mean, kind of as we're experiencing it now with this global pandemic, there were always these epidemics happening. And as people are dying from smallpox, Cotton Mathers notices that his enslaved workers are not dying. Some of them are not even becoming sick. And he wants to know why. And so Onesimus tells him in his nation, they practice inoculation. And so Onesimus is freed because of this. And Cotton Mathers passes this on. It later circulates uh, several decades later to General George Washington, right? Before there's a United States, before he becomes the first president, he has to make a public health decision because his troops are dying because smallpox has reared its head again 
and George Washington inoculates his troops. You know, it's a really contentious topic. People are outraged um, when they find out that, in fact, this information comes from an African-born person who was enslaved. Mm. You know, they think that it could be witchcraft. I mean, all kinds of things. But George Washington inoculates his troops. And guess what? They live. And they're able to fight in the Battle of Bunker Hill, and they win. And it really, some folk argue, changes the course of the war. And it's a public health initiative that comes from the knowledge of West African people. And so there are ways that you see African knowledge about how to heal, mm-hmm. you know, that have really impacted early American history, even at the colonial level. That's such a great story. I, I love that Onesimus' story is one where an enslaved person's medical knowledge leads to these advances in medicine. As you talk about in your book, one of the very common scenarios is one where enslaved people's bodies are used to promote the health and comfort of enslavers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, teeth to create dentures would often be from enslaved people. Food was meted out to enslaved people. And so, you know, they weren't supping on sugary sweets, right? Right. Often. And so George Washington, you know, we learned as children. I don't know if, if, if children are still being taught this. I hope not. But I know when I was in elementary school, I was taught, oh, George Washington had dentures made of wood. No, in fact, two of his teeth were from an enslaved man. Right. Can you give us an example or two of medical advances that have come through working with enslaved people or experimenting on enslaved people, as it were. Oh, yeah. There's so many. I talk about, in my book, a French-born physician who, who immigrates to the United States, and his name was Francois-Marie Provost. He performed two successful C-sections on enslaved women in Louisiana. Uh, he had first practiced performing C-sections on enslaved women in Haiti. (laughs) So he moves to Louisiana in the 1800s. He continues this experimental work. And so he's been lauded for centuries as Francois-Marie Provost, the father of the C-section. A surgical method happened that revolutionizes gynecology, but it happens because the institution of slavery existed and Black women's bodies were very accessible. Mm. So many journals, medical journals during this time and medical casebooks are saturated with cases of enslaved people being used in this way. A physician or even a medical school can go to a slave owner and they can say, hey, you know, if your slaves were suffering from these conditions or illnesses, if you donate them to our school or allow me to perform these experiments on them to fix them or to make them better, it's a, it's a good, it's a common good that I'm performing because I'm increasing your property value, but I'm also advancing medicine. But there were also these beliefs about Black people. Their beliefs that Black people don't experience pain, or if they do, it's so minimal right. that they can bear cutting or they can bear really painful procedures in ways that white people cannot. So that means, oh, of course, black women can give birth and don't experience pain. Mm. Oh, black people can go through amputations of their limbs and not experience pain. Mm. Black people are in a state of intellectual arrested development, which means they don't have fear. 
They aren't afraid of surgeries or painful procedures. So doctors are using their bodies in ways that they would not use white patients. One of the clearest examples that I use for my students is the ways doctors would treat Black women for certain conditions. So there was a condition where uh, after women would give birth, sometimes there were tears. Mm -hmm. So they would have to be sutured or stitched. And, you know, the doctors believed that those surgeries were pretty painless for Black women. If a white woman, and in particular, a white woman who was very wealthy or highly respected, suffered from the same condition, oftentimes she wouldn't even be approached because the doctor believed that she was so fragile, mm. she couldn't take the pain. And so what that means is ultimately the enslaved woman, her body is repaired surgically, but the white woman, I mean, it, it's, it's really a cruel twist of fate. She's left to deal with the pain of that condition. This idea about biological difference leads to some pretty devastating results in Philadelphia during the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. Yeah, 1793 and the yellow fever epidemic was ravaging the city of, of Philadelphia. And Benjamin Rush, who uh, was a founding father, uh, and he was also arguably the country's um most well-respected physician and uh, known as the father of American medicine and also the father of American psychiatry, considered um, very progressive for his for his day. He believed in women's medical education, was a staunch anti-slavery advocate. Benjamin Rush believed, however, that Black people were immune hmm. from yellow fever. Although Black people were dying in great numbers yeah. in Philadelphia. But he goes to two Black leaders that were ministers and highly respected, uh, Reverend Richard Allen, who was the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and uh, also Absalom Jones. And he says, hey, I need you to recruit uh, Black people to take care of sick white residents because you all are hardier, you're sturdier, right? This disease doesn't affect you. And although Richard Allen and Absalom Jones let him know that he was mistaken about this supposed <laughs> immunity, this is a moment where Black people are really trying to prove they're worthy of citizenship. Mm -hmm. And so they recruit Black people. And guess what happens? Black people begin to die um, in even greater numbers. It wipes out about 10% of the Black population. Richard Allen, uh, he is infected, and he nearly dies from his bout with yellow fever. But some white residents begin to say that Black people took advantage of white Philadelphians. This one guy, he publishes a tract, and he says, Black residents, when they would be in the houses nursing these patients, they were stealing and so, you know, they were really the great scourge on, on the city, not yellow fever. Absalom Jones and Richard Allen are like, wait a minute, we didn't want to do this. We were recruited. <laughs> and then you have us doing, and I'll use 21st century language here, you have us doing frontline work. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who are digging the ditches. We're nursing sick people. We're exposed. Um, it's clear that we can become infected because many of us have died. And mm -hmm. now... 
we're now being accused of avarice and theft. And so these two men, Reverends Jones and Allen, published a political tract, and it outlines all of the ways that, you know, these beliefs about Black people were rooted in discrimination. And so the first political tract written by Black leaders in the new nation was centered around medical racism. It really is fascinating. And both the original sort of accusation about Black Philadelphians during Yellow Fever and the refutation by Richard Allen and Absalom Jones are available online. And we'll link to those resources in the show notes. That belief in biological difference hasn't necessarily gone away. Can you give us a couple of examples of where we see that legacy of the belief in biological difference? Oh, yeah. I mean, a the, the one uh, where Black people don't experience pain, there is a, a study that was done uh, by the University of Virginia in 2014. The study was published in 2016. So it's a, a simple Google search. And um, several medical students and residents, um, they were they had undergone a study assessing their beliefs in pain management with regard to white patients and black patients. And they believed that black people didn't experience pain, that their bodies aged quicker, that black people had thicker skin. I mean, these are the results that are coming from the medical students and residents in the 21st century. It's very similar to these ideas of biological difference that stem from the 1800s that black people don't experience pain or black people have less lung capacity than than white people um, because of a study that was done in the 1850s by a physician named Samuel Cartwright. Well, if you're talking about enslaved people in the 1850s who are living in cramped quarters, Mm -hmm. slave cabins that don't have insulation. Um, It's a one room (laughs) shack um, where people are stuffing holes with paper and fabric. There's a big fireplace and chimney. There's no air circulation. Well, of course, it's going to affect your ability to breathe. Right. Well, 2017, a study comes out. Now, it was rife with statistical errors, but it claimed that race and biology indicated that the airways of asthmatic African-Americans became more inflamed than those of asthmatic white Americans. But just as Samuel Cartwright didn't provide context, the same thing with this 2017 study, right? So yes, do, do Black people or African-Americans suffer more from asthma than white folk in the U.S.? Yes, yes, they do. But the context is in African-American, predominantly African-American neighborhoods, you have more environmental hazards like right. air pollution from highways, from, fi- uh, from factories. There are disparities in access to high quality health care. And so when the context is provided, you see it has nothing to do with biology, but it has everything to do with the factors that create these kinds of conditions. Mm. And so the fact that you have these beliefs that have this lingering effect. It really is medical racism from the 18th and 19th century still penetrating the ways that scientists and doctors believe. How do we help students to understand the difference between the sort of faulty science that claims that there are distinct biological differences among races with environmental and contextual factors that do lead to different health outcomes at times for people of different races. Yeah. 
But I remember when I was I was teaching students um, who were largely freshmen, they were just coming from high school. Um, and so a lot of their information, you know, sometimes was anecdotal, you know, like I thought only black people got sick of cell. Right. It was an evolutionary response to malaria. And so anybody who was living in an area where there's a, there were bodies of water that had lots of mosquitoes, mm-hmm. it becomes the body's response. So whether you're Greek, whether you are, you know, from Bali, mm-hmm. um, whether you're from Nigeria, any place that's near a large body of water, that's the body protecting itself from malaria. So if we were to think about race as the indicator, it's going to lead us down a wrong path every time. This is Teaching Hard History, and I am Hassan Kwame Jeffries. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources, as well as a full transcript, complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org slash podcasts. Let's return now to Bethany's conversation with Deidre Cooper Owens. When we think about slavery, right at the center of it is the value, the monetary value, to put it very bluntly, of Black people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And in the case of obstetrics, Black women's reproductive potential. And so how does the reproductive value of enslaved people Mm -hmm. impact enslaved women? That's a really great question because... Everything was bound up in the issue of money. A lot of really wealthy men who were interested in the reproductive health of black women mm. because they can't import Africans. The Constitution made that illegal in 1807. And so that means making sure that when black women are pregnant and black women give birth, trying to create the best health that we can for them under that condition. And I am using best. I know you all can't see me because it's a podcast, (laughs) but I'm using air quotes when I say that. You can Google databases that have slave ads. Oftentimes we'll look at these ads and they'll say breeding woman. Mm -hmm. So that indicates to someone interested in purchasing an enslaved woman that she can give birth, right? Um, Or that she's already a mother, that she has several children. Mm -hmm. And so that, that increases her economic value for the person who owns her. A lot of enslaved women would have children by their owners, not of their own free will, but because they were considered property. And typically when you had people of European descent who were enslaving others, even in Europe, the condition of the child was not, was not connected through the mother. It was always connected through the father. But what made the U.S. unique? Slavery, the condition of slavery was passed to a child by its mother. And what this means is it doesn't matter who the father was. It could literally be Thomas Jefferson, who mm-hmm. indeed had children by his uh, the woman that he owned, Sally Hemings, or it could be an enslaved man, a free man, a white man, a, a native man. It didn't matter. Um, because if the condition passed on to the children from the father, that meant there could be the loss of enslaved children. And when I talk about that rule that the child follows the condition of the mother, 
I often talk about the fact that it's very easy to know who the mother of a child is. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to know who the father is. Yes. And my students often pick up on the way that that rule incentivizes the sexual assault of black women Mm -hmm. on the part of their enslavers. Exactly. How does the relationship between medicine and African-American people change as we transition from slavery to freedom, Mm -hmm. from slavery to Jim Crow, as it were? It's interesting. One would think, okay, everything's going to suddenly become better (laughs) from slavery to freedom. And what we find is that same fraught history. There's a belief that In essence, freedom was not necessarily a good thing for the health of Black people mentally, but also physically. All of a sudden, the same ways that um, white physicians and scientists have been writing about Black people as stronger and hardier, um, you know, possessing a kind of superhuman strength to withstand pain, all of a sudden, you have, they are weaker. And so, From life insurance policies to medical insurance, you start to see that Black people have to pay more in terms of their their insurance, these premiums. You also have uh, disregard for Black women's reproductive care Mm. because there's no longer an economic price on the heads of Black people. The hospitals become segregated by law because if someone owns you, you're going to be treated at a hospital that the slave owner bills. And so sometimes that means that he's treating black and white patients. When Jim Crow happens, the law says that black people and white people have to be treated separately. Mm -hmm. You now have these black hospitals that are not black run and the black hospitals tend to be poorly funded. I mean, there were all kinds of studies that were conducted by the government on Black people. Mm -hmm. They tended to be large-scale and really unethical, um, medically irresponsible, and informed consent doesn't really seem to be applicable for Black people. This is during the age of, of freedom. And so it becomes a starting point for Black people having a real distrust of the medical field because where's the great change between slavery and freedom? They're not seeing a lot of it in terms of their treatment. And as you point out, one of those big changes is the erasure of monetary value associated Mm -hmm. with Black people. And so the idea of preserving Black women's reproductive health completely disappears, right? And we we make a a Mm -hmm. left turn into seeing sort of Black women's reproductive uh, lives as burdensome or dangerous. Yeah. How does that impact Black women? We start to see that Black midwives who were responsible for being the providers for Black women during um, pregnancy and childbirth, they are essentially being wiped out. Um, Mm -hmm. There are all of these licensures that are being uh, created. And because of very stringent and and oftentimes very racist um, practices that leave them out, Black people are not able to get licenses. And so you begin to see a decline in the number of Black midwives. Um, And so that greatly impacts the maternal health of Black women. Mm. We also see forced sterilizations of women in the early 20s. They would go in for routine exams. Maybe there's something wrong. You know, they're suffering from migraines or, Mm -hmm. you know, they, Mm -hmm. they have a limp. They would find out years later that they had hysterectomies performed on them. 
the doctors without their consent or knowledge took away their ability to give birth. And so these kinds of things are happening, but also the ways that Black women started to be seen, and especially Black mothers, are starting to be seen as financial burdens. Right. And when you roll into the 20th century, you now have uh, language like welfare queens, the idea that Black women, single mothers, are gaming the system. In the 1980s in particular, with the rise of crack cocaine, you have the idea that Only black mothers could give birth to crack babies. You know, Mm. black Mm. women were not the only people, you know, smoking crack in the 80s. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, that these these little babies were somehow going to topple the U.S. economy. I mean, there were all kinds of news stories and, and senators making these pronouncements that these were going to be the single most expensive financial burden in the United States, you know, in its history. And then 20, 25 years later, you find out it was not true at all. Right. Learning for Justice has a special opportunity just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, consent, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. In terms of studies that were conducted by the government on Black people, the Tuskegee syphilis study is probably the most famous in 1932. The government wants to find out the ways that certain diseases affect um, the human body. And so Tuskegee, Alabama, is a town that has a disproportionate number of Black men who suffer from syphilis. And so the federal government and also the National Institute of Health partner with Tuskegee Institute, a really famous Black college. And so the leaders at this college, which is seen as the crown jewel in the Black community, they do a lot of recruitment and they go to institutions that black people trust the church. They go to schools. They have trusted community members uh, and leaders who speak out on behalf of this study and almost 600 black men sign up. They weren't told they had syphilis. They were told they had bad blood. They were told you have bad blood and we're going to set up a study to help you. And they don't know that they're signing up in 1932 for a study that would last 40 years. In fact, the government was simply interested in finding out how the Negro male, that's what Black people were called then, would respond to syphilis throughout the course of their lives. The federal government, the National Institute of Health, right, they were utilizing this study to not cure Black men, right? but to see how the disease would ravage their bodies. These men are never treated for their disease. By the 1940s, when penicillin is known to cure syphilis, they're given a placebo. That's amazing. Black men died because they were never treated. They passed on the disease to 
their wives and their girlfriends and their children. And it really devastates the community. And so the 1950s roll around and the 60s and the 70s, and the government is still doing this study. And there are a couple of doctors who find out about it. And they're like, wait, what you're doing is wrong. This is unethical. And the government ignores the doctors, please. And in fact, blacklists many of the doctors. And it wasn't until a whistleblower goes to the press in 1972 and a story breaks that the government finally suspends its study. After much petitioning by Black and white uh, public health officials and activists and family members and some of the victims, President Bill Clinton in the 1990s, 60-something years after the start of the Tuskegee study, finally issues a formal apology to the victims and their families. An apology is issued after many of the players have died. Mm-hmm. I think Tuskegee is a culmination of the ways that medical racism had been at play from the colonial period all the way to the so-called age of freedom. It's enraging and in some ways unsurprising. It's amazing. And as you point out, at the base of a lot of this are are these issues of informed consent, of Mm -hmm. people knowing what they are signing up for or not, whether it's forced sterilizations of women or whether it's the idea that you're getting treatment and you're not. Mm -hmm. The other sort of really famous example that's become prominent in recent years is Henrietta Lacks. Yes. And what happened to her. And again, the sort of idea of informed consent there. Can you talk with us just a little bit about Henrietta Lacks? Sure. She was a relatively young woman, young uh, wife and mother, goes to Johns Hopkins Hospital and finds out she has cancer. Mm. And unfortunately, she dies. The doctors harvested her cells. And what they found, it was amazing. She had these cells that kept regenerating. Mm. Most cells die outside of the body. All of a sudden, here you have this woman who, I mean, she's, She's dead, but her cells are living. So the doctors are calling them immortal. And in fact, they named the cells after her, HeLa cells, capital H, small e, and then capital L, A. And so the doctors are just kind of like, hey, we have these immortal cells and they're sending it to their colleagues all around the world. And all of a sudden you have research labs and hospitals and research teams and biotech companies. They're all profiting from the knowledge of Henrietta Lacks' cells. It's kind of hard to get informed consent from a a patient who who has died. But what in those cases, you're supposed to get informed consent from the family. Henrietta Lacks' family was not informed of what the doctors did. And they never gave consent. The family doesn't find out until decades later. Decades later. And... These places are really profiting from the knowledge of her cells. And these cells have gone into space. They're everywhere around the world. They've been on all the continents in research. Her family doesn't even have medical insurance. They're so poor. No, geez. Yeah. And so in 2021, remember, she dies in the 1950s. In 2021, her family finally 
gets the legal representation so that they can sue the biotech companies who have profited from their mother's immortal cells. So sometimes, right, when people think, oh, we're talking about somebody who died in the 1950s, the legacy of these practices show up in the 21st century. It's quite amazing. And it speaks, as you say, to the legacy and the sort of long-term impact of these medical practices. Yeah, yeah. When you think about all of those things that we've talked about, I think what for me is probably the most promising in the 21st century is now we know better. So -hmm. we know better. Um, And we now have a a government arm, which is the CDC, the Center for Disease Prevention and Control, who finally said in 2021, you know what? Medical racism is a public health issue. And so now we are going to create steps to combat this. And so a part of that is through education. A part of that is through community outreach. A part of it is through creating pipelines for young students of color to become Mm -hmm. doctors and nurses. And so we are finally addressing these things through the implementation of structures that are designed to be more inclusive um, and equity sits at the center of it. And so that's what makes me hopeful that Mm -hmm. um, hopefully in 50 years, you know, we won't have to have another podcast that this really can be (laughs) about teaching history and not necessarily having history be in conversation with the present. That's absolutely fabulous. And with so many things that we've talked about this season on the podcast, there's hope, but there's also work and diligence that needs to happen to make sure that that hope turns into something tangible. Right. And hopefully our listeners will take up that charge. So thanks so much for being here, Dr. Cooper Owens. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Deirdre Cooper Owens is the Charles and Linda Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she is the Director of the Humanities and Medicine Program. Dr. Cooper Owens is the author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. She is also the Director of the Program in African American History at the Library Company of Philadelphia where you can find an online exhibition called Deja Vu. We've been here before. Race, health, and epidemics. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. Cooper Owens for sharing her insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. 
and Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Asan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, and your host for Teaching Hard History. <laughs>